This week's TribCast is sponsored by Raise Your Hand, Texas. Listen to the new Raise Your Hand, Texas podcast, Intersect Ed, where the stories of education policy and practice meet. Visit raiseyourhandtexas.org slash podcast. And Texas Conference for Women. In this new episode, renowned journalist and best-selling author Malcolm Gladwell shares inspiration and advice for living boldly and meeting the demands of the new world of work. Listen now at conferenceforwomen.org. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune TribCast for August 11th, 2021. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. And this week, I am joined by politics reporter Patrick Svitek. Hey there. Politics reporter James Badagon. Hello. And introducing our new urban affairs reporter, Joshua Fector. Welcome, Josh. Hey. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. All right. This week... I want to start by what has, I think you could adequately call a crisis point in the COVID-19 pandemic in Texas as a new wave of cases has overwhelmed hospitals and the local control fight between big city local officials and Governor Greg Abbott has escalated. Uh, As we speak uh, right now, there are fewer ICU beds available in the state than at any other time since the pandemic started. That's a combination of a new wave of hospitalizations and also staffing shortages among healthcare workers across the state. Meanwhile, some of the state's biggest school districts have decided to openly defy Abbott's order banning mask mandates at schools. And two urban counties, Bayer County and Dallas County, has successfully, at least for now, taken Abbott to court to win the power to issue new mandates in their jurisdictions. Um, A lot to digest and discuss here. But first, Joshua, I want to start with you. You sat in on a legislative hearing yesterday in which the leaders of the state's biggest hospital systems described the challenges they're facing right now. What did you hear from them? What are they saying about about what things look like over there? Right. So it's become a bit of a cliche at this point, but I, I think it bears noting, like if if you're starting to feel like it's March 2020 all over again, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be wrong. And what what hospital leaders told uh, the state health, uh, the Senate Health and Human Services Committee yesterday was, you know, hospitals are basically on the brink of catastrophe that you know they don't have you know nearly the amount of nurses that they need to handle this surge uh, that they're competing with each other to uh, basically obtain the few nurses that are around and you know telling telling lawmakers that basically there needs to be sort of more coordination um, but you know there there were there were sort of dire uh, you know, uh, statements made yesterday that basically look like, um, and especially from the head of the Harris uh, public health system saying, look, like it doesn't really matter what you do right now. Uh, there's There there may not be anything you can do to sort of save us from from overloading our hospitals with, with this new wave of COVID patients. Uh, you're uh, basically, where Texas does not have the vaccination rate, uh, it needs to be able to fend this off on top of everything else. So, I mean, it's it's basically this perfect storm of 
of, of horrific news that that hospital leaders brought to uh, the state senate last night. Right. It's uh, of course hospitalization, kind of a lagging indicator, but one that you know is hard hard to to um, do something immediately about, right? Because there are all these cases of people who have presumably caught it in the last week or so who might not be in the hospital yet. But whatever you do related to mask orders or, or anything like that, it's going to be too late for those folks. So the the kind of steep increase, the, the thing we've been hearing about how hospitalizations have kind of increased lately at a rate unseen previously in the pandemic. I'm looking at our chart on our website right now. On August 9th, there were 329 ICU beds available in the state. And, and yeah, as I said earlier, that's the, the lowest number since at least April of last year, and I think even before then. And, and, you know, this is, of course, a regional thing. And a lot of regions are extremely short, you know, hospitals reporting that they're already full or, or, you know, hospital regions that are talking about, you know, single digit, you can count on one hand the amount of ICU beds that are available. Patrick, we saw Abbott, you know, his attitude leading up to this for the last few weeks has been to not really raise the alarm here. But this week, uh, I believe on Monday, we, we did see him kind of take the first steps he's taken in a while to kind of address what's what's going on out there. Can you talk a little about the steps he took? Yeah, I mean, he has, you know, acknowledged uh, that we're still in a pandemic, but it's certainly not rang the alarm about the current situation. Um, and it's been pretty stark. You've seen, uh, you know, the Department of State Health Human Services use um, much more uh, concerned language than the governor has about the situation that we're currently in with COVID. Um, but he's continuing to uh, more or less act like everything is, is normal, um, not totally ignoring the fact we're in a pandemic, but certainly not um, ringing the alarm um, about the moment that we're in. Um, and, you know, up until this week, um, you know, a lot of conversation was focused on whether he was going to issue any new statewide restrictions, uh, whether he was going to let school districts uh, institute mask or vaccine mandates. Uh, and he continues to hold firm on that. But he did um, this week announce um, a couple new moves uh, via a news release. Um, you know, not exactly the most splashy uh, and attention grabbing uh, venue for this, but via news release, um, these moves are, you know, largely aimed at uh, reducing hospitalizations and freeing up hospital resources. Um, obviously, hospitals are overwhelmed right now. Uh, one of them was asking hospitals to voluntarily uh, end non-elective uh, procedures. Um, and, you know, this is certainly not as restrictive as a similar, a somewhat similar ask he made last year when the pandemic was raging uh, in Texas, where he, you know, issued an executive order basically requiring um, hospitals to end these kinds of procedures to free up um, hospital capacity. Um, and so not exactly going as far as he did last year, um, but taking a step nonetheless. Um, he also, uh, you know, made an announcement related to bringing in uh, medical staffing, including nurses uh, from out of state. Um, so a lot of these these moves that he did announce this week are really aimed at um, hospitalizations um, as a metric and really aimed at freeing up hospital capacity. Um, you know, he's still not taking any new moves uh, as it relates to, you know, stopping the spread specifically within the public, within communities, when it comes to people who are out and about. Um, and so there wasn't really a change of attitude uh, at that level, I would say. 
Yeah, you know, the, you, you talk about the staffing issue, which seems to be a, a very big one here. We, we, when you look at kind of the charts of, of where Texas has gone throughout this pandemic, the number of people hospitalized right now is alarmingly high, unquestionably, but it's still below the two previous peaks, you know, what we saw uh, in summer of 2020 and also what we saw kind of around the turn of the year during during the winter. But one of the issues here is staffing is if you if you have beds, it doesn't matter if, if you can't staff them. And and one thing we have heard a lot about is the nursing shortage around the state and how hospitals are kind of desperate to hire nurses. And and we're really kind of desperately pleading for Abbott to, to help them because the state helped in previous uh kind of peaks in the hospitalization area that did end up happening, but still kind of those that takes time and those concerns are raised. The other thing we've kind of seen from the locals, of course, is the continued fight over whether they should be able to implement their own local restrictions, whether it's masks or, um, you know, restrictions on businesses on the capacity. Abbott, of course, has maintained in his order for, for months now that that local mask mandates are not allowed, that Texas is not going to have a mask mandate. The The line we've heard from him a few times is that the time is now for personal responsibility. He's encouraging people to get vaccinated, but not, you know, allowing mandates, at least from the local governments. He's encouraging people to mask, but is not allowing school districts or counties to issue masks. Of course, this week, Josh, we saw finally kind of a resistance from that legal battles from from Bayer County and Dallas County. Tell us about what happened there. Yeah, so, so local officials, you know, city and county leaders throughout this pandemic have been fairly lowercase c conservative about sort of challenging uh, Governor Abbott, sort of overruling them on these various mandates. And, you know, this week we, we started to see, you know, them, them push back against Abbott. Uh, in Bear County in San Antonio yesterday, uh, Mayor Ron Nuremberg and County Judge Nelson Wolf won a, you know, a temporarily won uh, a victory that would basically, that will allow them to mandate masks in school districts. Uh, Clay Jenkins up in Dallas County also won uh, a temporary court battle yesterday to to allow him to implement what what appears to be sort of a countywide mask mandate. Harris County looks like it's about to uh, wade into the breach here and and, and file its own sort of legal uh, legal sort of challenge to Abbott. Um, I, I'm I'm hearing that Austin may do something soon. Uh, but yeah, what, what basically caused sort of the dam to break was sort of this notion that you know, sc- you know, school kids are, are 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 they're back in school, and you know, if you're under the age of twelve, um, you can't get vaccinated. So I mean, that was kind of the urgency that was that was kind of what fueled this newfound urgency, and. You know what what it's kind of doing is also creating sort of a patchwork. Um, you know, if Dallas moves forward with sort of a countywide mask mandate, that's going to be different than than in Bear County, where it's only mandated in schools. And in the meantime, you know, some school districts are uh, are rebelling against the rebellion and sort of not, uh, you know, abiding by the the mask mandate in Bear County. You've got Northside ISD that's 
saying, you know, we're, we're going to go with the governor. And what you're going to run into is like, okay, how, how can you sort of enforce these, these mandates? And, you know, I, I, the city attorney for San Antonio just said a couple of minutes ago that he doesn't plan to enforce the mandate on, on school districts. So uh, yeah, it's just kind of creating this this patchwork and perhaps confusion. Yeah, it's interesting. We're we're starting to kind of go back to the very early days of the pandemic, where depends it depends on where you are in Texas as far as what the rules are. We of course saw Tarrant County, I mean, sorry, Dallas County and Bayer County both successfully, at least for now, winning the right in court to impose mandates. Sounds like you said Travis County might do the same. Harris County has been authorized to bring uh, a case against uh, the state as well. And then when you look at kind of the biggest city school districts, we've got Dallas County looking to uh, have a mask mandate in their schools. We've got Austin ISD doing the same. Uh, Houston ISD, the biggest district in the state, appears to be moving that direction, Fort Worth ISD. And then in San Antonio, they're trying to impose those rules, but it sounds like some districts won't, you know, aren't listening at this point. So kind of a, a depends on where you are on or what the rules will say. Patrick, what do we make about Abbott's response to this defiance so far? I mean, I will be honest, I would have thought that by now, after we've seen so much action from the school districts, you know, openly defying this order that we would have seen some kind of legal action or even the threat of legal action from from Abbott or, or, or Ken Paxton, the attorney general in this case. But at least for now, as we stand here at Wednesday, a little bit afternoon, we, we haven't seen that so far. Yeah, it is pretty surprising. Um, I got to imagine something is in the works, you know, as we speak Wednesday afternoon. Um, but you know, this is, you know, a, a massive political issue for Abbott. And we know that he's been very responsive um, in recent months to the criticism he's getting on his right. Um, and he obviously does not want to be seen as, um, you know, being weak um, to these, uh, you know, school district leaders who are defying him. And so I would anticipate just based on his behavior pattern, um, you know, in recent months, um, that, you know, there would be some kind of uh, aggressive pushback on this. The question is, uh, what exactly um, can he do here? Um, you know, I think some of the, the you know, scenarios are, you know, obviously trying to figure out a way uh, to punish school districts, um, you know, who have defied him. Um, the extent to which, though, you need the legislature involved in that, I think, is, is under discussion. I, I, you know, Abbott loves to act unilaterally. I'm not sure in this case he could. I don't doubt uh, his ability to find a way to act unilaterally in this case, perhaps. Um, but the legislature may need to be involved in that. Um, you know, he could also, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he could also just issue uh, an updated executive order that makes the penalty for these districts who defy him much higher or much more severe than it currently is, which I think is just a $1,000 fine. Um, so I think he has some options here, just a question of, of when and, and how, which option he's going to go with. Um, but right now, um, you know, I think just it, not just in the state kind of Republican uh, environment, but in the national Republican environment, um, you know, all the incentives are with, uh, you know, the, the, are for Republican governors, at least the incentives within their own party are for Republican governors uh, to fight these um, defiant local leaders as much as possible um, and try to get them to stand down. Yeah, can I, can I weigh in here a little bit, Matthew? Because I think one informative way to look at it is sort of the uh, rules on voting that happened last year. 
it is sort of a, a similar situation in that, you know, local local authorities wanted to have, um, you know, much tighter restrictions on how to go about voting. And obviously Abbott asked the Secretary of State to give their minimum requirements. Um, but at some point we had minimum requirements and that was pretty much where we were at. And, and Democrats, if you all remember, uh, you know, try to push for universal mail voting. And that was a big fight that we had. And so I kind of see that as a parallel to what we're seeing now. Um, the big cities, the big school districts, particularly the big cities and big counties that are run by Democrats are trying to go around the governor's mask mandates. And I do think that, you know, it, once this is all said and done, uh, just knowing the state judiciary and its makeup, it's going to probably end up in the in the same result. The, the, the big cities have won some victories at the local level, um, but you know, higher up the food chain and the judiciary and the state judiciary, those um, seats are held by Republicans. Um, and that's not to be, you know, uh, crass or, uh, yeah, I guess crass about, you know, politics influencing the judiciary outcomes. But I think that based on what we've seen in the past, um, it's very likely that they will come down on the side of, of Governor Abbott. Yeah, absolutely true. And I think it's interesting, though, the the speed at which this has happened, because, of course, we also saw a ruling, and we can talk about this earlier, by a Travis County judge saying that um, the Democratic lawmakers who had, had, you know, were not showing up in the House could uh, could not be arrested, right? And we saw kind of how quickly they went straight to the Supreme Court on that. And the Supreme Court came back and said, you know, actually, you can be arrested. Compare and contrast that to the pace which this is going. I am just a little bit surprised that we haven't seen that kind of action yet. And I do wonder whether some of that is, you know, Abbott is, of course, worried about his right flank. And of course, a lot of people in his party are concerned about um, any kind of mask rules or anything like that. But you know, we're in a very difficult position. It's it, it's hard for Abbott to come out here and be really fighting local officials and pushing for, for restrictions, pushing for more safety measures when we're seeing headlines like, you know, crisis point where, where the hospitals are overwhelmed and the kind of things that we've been seeing in the last couple of days. So I do wonder, and I this is 100% speculation and maybe I'm wrong here, but, but whether there's something that's causing him to kind of be a little bit less aggressive at, at this point. I guess we'll see this. Yeah, I was, I was just going to note too, like it's not just external political forces that have him boxed in. Like it's not just the primary opponents who are ramping up pressure on this. It's his own statements. He has staked out some very um, unequivocal territory on his own. If you look at the public statements he's made over the past month at different events where he said we're past the time of government mandates, he said in Dallas last week, there will be no more government mandates or something like that. I mean, he has made some very, very uh, explicit statements ruling out actions and politically um, and just substantively, it's going to be very painful if he has to go back on them. But a couple of things. One one is that, you know, uh, and sorry, uh, Joshua, but uh, just wanted to get a couple points in here about uh, uh, Don Huffines, who's running in that uh, Republican primary, just put out a statement uh, right before or yeah, right before we came on the podcast. And his the subject line is Huffines demands Abbott stop surrendering to local mass tyrants. So there's the pressure from the right. Um, but I think there's also, to Patrick's point about him having boxed himself in just with his previous statements, um, another 
parallel that I'd like to draw to last year was, you know, when the the one mistake he said he felt like he did was on on the bars, on keeping bars open, I think was was what he said. And we're playing with a lot right here because it's not just pressure coming in for the medical community that's saying like, oh, we have staffing shortages and we need a lot more help and our ICU beds are, are really low. Um, but there's also kids going back to school. And when you when you start talking about kids, it's a completely different ball game. Um, and you can draw that parallel also to um, the transgender sports athletes ban that's happening at the legislature. I think people who oppose the bathroom bill are having a little bit more difficulty with that sports transgender ban uh, because it has to do with kids and school children. Here we're talking about school children pot- potentially falling ill, potentially having grave consequences. Um, and I think that definitely makes you think. It definitely makes parents think. Even apolitical parents who are not super involved in the legislature are worried right now about their kids going back to school and catching this much more contagious uh, version of the virus. And I think that's, that's I think, where the hesitation is. And I do think that the governor is at an inflection point where he has sort of boxed himself in with these statements. But at the same time, does he want to risk uh, that we get into a, a a more complicated situation with the virus, and also that it affects kids and children um, at a higher rate. Well, th- and this is a this is a smaller point, but you know something that I was I was thinking about is, you know, is Abbott boxed in? If you know, I, I'm thinking about you know the situation in Bear County where you've got Northside ISD and Shirt Cibolo Universal City School Districts. Uh, saying that they're not going to abide by the city county mask mandate in schools, and you know these are areas of, of the county and of town that are uh, you know more conservative parts of town, and you know, the city attorney has said he's not going to he's not going to go after them, and I have to wonder that if you see that sort of pattern play out, you know over you know the. Uh, you know, across the state, and if and if you see sort of lax enforcement of this by the folks who are, uh, you know, actually you know putting these in place, then you know, is he going to feel compelled to to do anything? Like, is and and is it actually going to blow back if like more conservative parts of of the state and these urban areas um, are are basically going to be exempt from from these mandates? Yeah, Joshua, I think that's a it's a good point because the the places that are going to get in these fights, whether either make the decision to sue Abbott or, you know, just kind of blatantly defy him, are most likely going to be places that are more democratic run. You know, obviously the school boards are not partisan, but you know they're in areas where people are more interested in these mask mandates and things like that, which is also sort of an interesting contrast because a lot of the areas where I think people are going to be less likely to wear masks and things like that could then be in a situation where they don't have the mandates. Whereas, you know, my kids go to Austin ISD. Um, I felt pretty confident going into this that, you know, even if it wasn't required, it looks like it will be required now, at least for the short term, that most of the kids in my 
kids elementary school were going to be coming to school masked up either way so i do wonder whether we're in kind of a situation where we're just going to be kind of in reinforcing the habits that people might have already had from a from a broad picture uh, i also want to go back to what you said james about the what has changed in the delta variant um because of course you know we talk about abbott boxing himself in when he issued this order particularly around schools it was right around the end of the last school year. Cases were on the decline. The Delta variant wasn't a really big concern. And I know he kind of, the way he issued it, it was going to be until not until kind of June where it went into effect when most schools, of course, weren't in session. And I, I want to, I've been thinking a little bit about the comparison with Abbott and other governors. You know, we saw the governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchison, coming out uh, last week, I believe, kind of basically saying that the the mask ban, mask mandate ban was a mistake, you know, and that, that we know things now that we didn't know then. You know, ultimately, I didn't think it was going to get bad like this again. Meanwhile, you see, of course, everyone loves to point, particularly on the right, at DeSantis in Florida and the actions he's taking and compare them to Abbott. And he is coming out, you know, being very aggressive against these schools that are trying to require masks, talking about taking away funding and things like that. And, and so there are kind of different models that we've seen from different governors and how this could be reacted to. And I, I guess it you know, at this point, you would have to say that Abbott falls kind of in the middle of those two two kind of polls as, as he hasn't been as aggressive as DeSantis, at least yet in going after these districts, but also hasn't kind of acknowledged, you know, or, or he hasn't talked about, you know, mistakes or any regrets or anything like that as well. So we've, we shall see. It's, um, I think, something, you know, is, by the time this podcast is up, by the time people are listening to it, we could have seen lawsuits. We could have seen further actions from Abbott as well. But for now, let's, let's stop there and let's hear a message from our sponsors. The Education Trust in Texas advocates for high-quality education for Black and Latino students and students from low-income backgrounds who have gone underserved for far too long. Learn more at edtrust.org slash Texas. And the Beer Alliance of Texas. Members of the Beer Alliance of Texas support and are fully compliant with the long-established three-tier regulatory system. Find out more at beeralliance.com. Join us at the Texas Tribune Festival taking place virtually from September 20th through the 25th. There we'll bring the future into focus as we look ahead to what's next in Texas politics, policy, and beyond. Buy tickets at tribfest.org. All right, so James, I want to turn to you next on our second top topic. While the, the crisis continues with COVID, we have had quite a bit of news coming out of the Texas Capitol as well. I believe the last time we talked, we hadn't even had Abbott declare the next special session. But as we speak now, you know, over the weekend or late last week, Abbott declared that he would be calling a second special session. That special session, that second special session started over the weekend and the Senate, as kind of expected, got to work just like they did in the first session, passing bills, voting things out of committee. But as we speak right now, some House members, some House Democrats have returned to Austin but not enough for the House to kind of resume its normal work. We are still short of a quorum. And last night, Dade Phelan signed arrest warrants for 52 of the Democrats who have not returned to the House. James, what's the latest? Are we, we 
we we reconvened yes today not much happened with the house are our, our, our is dps out there knocking on people's doors or, or where do we go from here for the for the democrats who still aren't showing up well we are still without a quorum obviously <clears throat> uh, and there has been a call of the house which i think that happened on monday now there's also officially uh been warrants signed by the house speaker which is of course allowed under the house rules um, and so the sergeant at arms is now empowered. And I believe right now, as we speak, I just saw a tweet from a, a fellow reporter, who, the house sergeant at arms is going office to office right now um, by members uh, and sort of delivering the warrants. So I think we are at that stage now where uh, the sergeant at arms and any law enforcement officer deputized by them um, is going around looking for these Democrats. We know that there are several Democrats here in Texas uh, who are in the state but are not coming to the Capitol. Uh, I know that Celia Israel of Austin is one of them. Um, I think uh, Lena Ortega of El Paso is another one. Uh, John Rosenthal of Houston is another one. And I don't know how many there actually are. People are obviously being tight-lipped about it, especially now that the, the threat is very serious. Um, but they're here in the state, and as long as they are within the uh, boundaries of the state, they are subject to uh, being uh, detained by law enforcement or House Sergeant-at-Arms or anyone deputized by them and brought back to the Texas Capitol to uh, help in acquiring that quorum that's been so elusive for the last month and a half. So that's sort of where we are. There are, I think, legal questions still, and also just PR, PR questions really about what that actually looks like. I mean, do do Republicans really want the optics of, you know, putting their hands on and using bodily force uh, to uh, arrest, quote unquote, arrest a Democratic lawmaker um, and bring them back to uh, the Capitol for for this quorum? I think that's one question, um, and and then. I think there's other questions about that that I think Patrick and, and, and our colleague our colleague Cassie Pollock have written about of once we do obtain quorum, which will happen at some point, who knows if it'll happen this session, but once we do get quorum, um, how do we move forward? You know, there's obviously a lot of animosity in the House um, between the members, particularly Republicans and Democrats. And how do they get any of this work done? Or does, do, do, do Republicans just run over the Democrats in retaliation for uh, this? Really, what has been an embarrassment for them for the last month, month and a half, that they haven't been able to get anything done. And, and Democrats have been in Washington, D.C., uh, fighting for some type of federal voting rights legislation. They've called the, the elections bill Jim Crow 2.0, which Patrick and Cassie reported has been much to the chagrin of Republican lawmakers who do not appreciate being characterized as racist, being characterized as liars on this bill. So I think there's a lot of rancor really. And I think that's one thing that I'll be watching uh, once once we do eventually get back in the, in the, in the, in the house uh, and working, but uh, several steps to go before then. <laughs> It's how close are we right now to a quorum? Like, what, is, what does it look like when the House comes together each day in, in terms of numbers? Well, yeah, on Monday, I believe we had 95 members present, which was just five members short of a quorum. That was after four Democrats, um, you know, had uh, newly defected back to the House floor on Monday. Um, so 
you know, if those, if that baseline holds, um, they don't really need that many more members to get a quorum. They don't need necessarily to bring back every single Democrat that's still out there. Um, we know as of today, according to a picture that was tweeted by some of the Democrats in DC, that there are at least still 18 Democrats in DC outside the reach of law enforcement. And so I think the question is, um, you know, what, what is the size of the, what is the size of the pool of Democrats who are, you know, I don't, I don't know any other word, but like who are gettable, obtainable for law enforcement right now uh, here in Texas. Um, there are just a few, as James pointed out, who have publicly said, yeah, I'm back from D.C. I'm in Texas. I'm not going to say anything else. I'm not going to the House floor. Um, but there are a lot of lawmakers, I think, at least publicly, whose whereabouts are still unknown, are somewhere between having been in D.C. and, and maybe being taken to the House floor. I'm just somewhere in between that. And we don't know. But it, it does feel like we are maybe on the precipice of the beginning of the end, like this is maybe the, the like two hour 30 mark in the Scorsese movie on this, that like we are finally um, toward the, the, you know, the final few chapters of this. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll see you on the next trip, Castro. I'll probably eat those words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was just going to say that's a bold pronouncement there, Patrick. Yeah. I'm, I'm not taking any bets on where we are in the Scorsese film. Maybe that's a that's a, a wishful pronouncement from a, a <laughs> from a weary reporter. reporter yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna make you take this wholesome more, Patrick. Which Scorsese movie? <laughs> <laughs> I, I am not gonna even go there because I don't want any comparisons. <laughs> drawn between departed. The Come on, that's the departed. Well, they departed the capital. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's good, Matthew. The other, the other thing I was going to say about the, because I saw Patrick's face here, uh, is that uh, the other thing that it was worth highlighting that I that I mentioned earlier is the rancor and animosity that there is within the House. It's not just um, between the two parties. It's also like intra-party between the Democrats. Obviously, there's a contingent of Democrats who have returned. And Patrick wrote up a story about, you know, uh, you know, some choice words from some of the Democrats who are still breaking the quorum for those who have returned. I think there was some accusations of them throwing them under the bus and uh, a real roll call there. Um, so I think those relationships are, are also afraid and, and something to watch for. Yeah, and I think to, to, to the credit of the Democrats who are still breaking quorum, uh, they've been able to hold the line since those defections from their ranks on Monday, um, based on the, the the lawmakers who are on the floor on Tuesday, um, and what we seem to have observed on the to, on the floor on um, today Wednesday. Um, so it looks like the you know the intra-party pushback um, you know was able to kind of keep folks together, um, but they have you know since Monday kept the unified front by all appearances. Yeah, those various tweets and, and and other comments we saw from lawmakers did seem, you know, somewhat intentional to kind of really put the pressure on people to hold the line there. Um, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, what about the pressure that that Phelan is feeling right now? Does it, do we feel like the the House is united behind him in his efforts? Is there is there starting to be some impatience of, you know, we're now what come well i guess not we're half a week through the first legislative session do is there any urgency from you know his members or or from people on the right to be more aggressive in bringing these democrats in i i think there is urgency and i think there's particular urgency from the republican members um because you have to understand that while the democrats have been out you know the quorum busting democrats have been out the republicans have been sitting in the chamber every day 
for a month and a half at this point, away from their families, away from their businesses, uh, away from the things that they want to be doing, to just sit around and uh, essentially perform political theater because everybody knows that nothing's going to get done. At least for that first special session, the Democrats were very clear that we're not coming back. So they had to sit around for this political theater. Um, and to their credit, the House Republican Caucus, uh, I did think did a really good job of doing their messaging, holding pressers on the 13th pension check for teachers, on the foster kids stuff. Like every day they seem to have a plan. But I think patience is wearing thin. I did speak to a Republican lawmaker on Friday who said, man, they just they just got to um, do it. They just they just got to, you know, send out uh, the warrants and just go get them and get them in here so we can get this thing done. And I think Phelan has the backing of, you know, yeah, he, he had a pretty solid um, alliance, coalition, whatever word you want to use to to win the speaker's gavel. And I think he's he's got pretty solid support from them. They're able to deflect the blame from feeling onto the Democrats and, and really have been good about placing the blame on them. But I think at some point there is frustration. You know, there certainly is frustration from the lieutenant governor because he's He's pushed ahead with his chamber and they've gone full steam ahead and have already passed out bills. They passed it in the first session. They're passing them again. And they're saying that Patrick is saying like Dan Patrick that is, is saying he's going to pass the bills over and over again until they meet quorum. I think there's also frustration from the governor who wants this stuff done. And it is kind of like embarrassing. It's just like they're just embarrassing and squeezing them and getting national attention. So I think there is some pressure on feeling how much that is. I'm not sure, but I do think there is some impatience among some Republican members to just like, let's just get this over. Let's just do it. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems like if there is a divide among House Republicans, it is maybe among those who just want to get back to normal and get this done with when the Democrats come back. And those who, you know, say like, we can't go back to normal. This has done, you know, significant or irreparable damage to this body. We have to, you know, strip them of, of chairmanships. We, we can't be treating them, uh, you know, like the friendly allies, uh, that friendly colleagues that we have on the, on the floor in the past. I don't know, you know, how big that group is, but it seems like if there's a divide, um, maybe that's it. And then there's Lyle Larson, who uh, who seems to be in his own camp here, uh, <laughs> tweeting. He's uh, his own chamber at this point, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he'll start the independent in, party. <laughs> it, it, he's super into Tolkien and yeah, <laughs> Marcus Aurelius and and uh, and SVU. Is, yeah. I, it, that 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 forms the basis of the of the party, I think. Yeah, it's uh. It's really going to be interesting to see if and when everyone gets back in the same room together. I think about just how uh, just the world is grumpy right now in and of its own right. You know, everyone's behaving badly on airplanes and everything like that. And then, this, you know, these months and months of people being away from their houses, the tension, the frustrations. Like, I feel like once we get all these people in the same room again, it's going to get ugly really quickly. So. Um, it'll be interesting to watch for sure. But I think that probably does it for us now. We've gone on long enough. There will be plenty of time to, to talk about the next steps about this next week. We'll see whether we're talking about action in the House or continued um, efforts to get people back in there. But for now, thank you to James, Joshua, and Patrick. Thank you to our uh, producer, Michael Ray, and thank you to our sponsors, Raise Your Hand Texas, the Texas Conference for Women, the Education Trust, and the Beer Alliance for Texas. We'll talk to you all next week. Do I have to talk to you